Time for another sermon. How can I never feel ready or that it's good enough? Seems like after all these years, I should be more confident, less worried what people think. But what are people going to think? Are they going to like it? Are they going to like me? Come on, Glenn, it doesn't matter what people think. Your job is just to preach God's word. I know, but I can't help feeling the pressure to make everything just right. Oh, well, here it goes. Game on. Smile. Don't blow it. Let's go. So am I the only one with an ongoing game in my mind? (laughs) You're like, yes, you are. (laughs) Am I the only one who one minute can be full of faith and confidence and worship songs and the next moment feel like a failure and like everything is is falling apart? Does anyone else ever wake up in the morning or maybe even worse than waking up in the morning, wake up in the middle of the night and your thoughts are racing almost as if they have a a mind of their own? Um, At least for me in the middle of the night, especially those thoughts always come as like the worst case scenario, right? The the worst thing that you can imagine and the worst possible outcome um, is what you're, you're, you're thinking about. And so for me, you, you pray and you, maybe you remember a scripture or something like that, but then it's like the tug of war begins again. Well, I know that I cannot be um, the only one because even the great apostle Paul, right, this great, uh, you know, father of our faith admits that the struggle is real. Even the Apostle Paul, when there's a moment that he kind of pulls back the curtain on his life, and he doesn't always do that, but when he pulls back the curtain on his life, uh, he kind of reveals to us this almost ping-pong match being waged inside of him. Um, I'm talking about what we find in Romans chapter 7. Let me just read these scriptures to us because I think a lot of us relate to them. He says this in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. He says, I find this law at work. Uh, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, right, my, in my insides, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature am a slave to the law of sin. And and so just really quick reading over that, it's just a glimpse into kind of the constant mind games that I think if we were honest, we would admit that go on in pretty much all of us. And yet the more that I live and the more that I read and understand scripture, I believe, and and the more that I even begin to understand about kind of the brain and how the brain works, the more and more I am convinced that the game of life is won and lost literally in our minds, right? It's won or lost in our thoughts. And so kind of the premise of this is the mind is a battlefield. And as we begin a brand new series today called Mind Games, and it's going to take us four weeks uh, through to get through, that's kind of the idea is that this mind that we have is a battlefield. But here's the deal. If you are someone who knows for sure that you are prone to, whether it's anxious thoughts 
or negative thoughts, maybe even self-destructive stuff or racing thoughts that you can't seem to get a hold of, there is good news. And I really want this to be good news. And the good news is this, is that God's word spells out some very clear and some really practical ways that we can begin to not only take some ground in that battle, but I actually believe begin to experience victory in those areas. So the same Apostle Paul who talks about this battle that wages inside of him um, in another moment, another letter, 2 Corinthians, he writes about uh, a plan to kind of win these mind games. So check it out. This is going to be our, our kind of our key scripture, not only today, but we're going to come back to it throughout the series. So hopefully you got some message notes as you came on in. Uh, this is going to be in there, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, kind of key verses, good stuff. It says, for though we live in the world, Paul writes, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, uh, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So that is a powerful scripture. As I said, we're going to be kind of looking at that off and on over these next few weeks. But I want to start by just walking us through a few key concepts there because it's a real real powerful scripture. So let's just look at some of the words, some of the concepts in what we just read. And I want you to especially notice how much of the, the military language that you find in here. Because Paul begins by acknowledging that we are in a war. That's how he starts. He says, we are in a war. This is how we wage war. We don't do it as the world wages war. So in other words, it's not a a physical, it's not by physical force or it's not violence um, that we fight this war, but it is in the spiritual realms. One of the key themes to this whole study, and I think for us to really begin to make progress, um, both in our life that begins in our mind, is just recognizing this truth, that it is a battle right? We have a real enemy who wants to wreak a real mess of our life. And unless we're on guard against those things, it can wreck all kind of havoc. And so the reality is, if I could just be straight with you from right up front, if you say, hey, I want to see changes in my thought patterns, I want to see changes in my behavior, and we just kind of approach that in a very casual sort of way, kind of a sure whatever sort of way, I can just all but promise you, you are not going to see that change. We have to approach it with almost kind of that, that wartime mentality that there is a real battle that is going on. And in this battle, our weapons are not of this world. So obviously, many of you have been following in the, the news, the, the horrible war in Ukraine. And as you know, the world and the United States kind of rallies and says, you know, what are the weapons that we can, can send that will help them in that battle? If they're going to you know, hold, hold it off or even win that battle, what are weapons that we could send? They're asking the question, what's the most effective weapons for the battle that they're facing? That's essentially what Paul is asking here, not about a physical battle, but about this spiritual battle. He says, what are the weapons that are going to help us? And he says, the weapons are not of this world. In fact, just the opposite. He says, these weapons are divine power. So in other words, God's power. Elsewhere, Paul gives us a little hint into what this divine power is all about when he says it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. So winning this battle in your mind, and this is really important for Christians to hear, this is not a self-help sermon. This is not a look inside of yourself to try to discover the answers. This is something that depends on 
God. Our weapons are divine. They are from God. They're beyond ourselves. They're supernatural. But the divine goal of this is to demolish strongholds. We're just kind of walking through some of the language he uses here. And, and you may not use that word stronghold very often in your you know, daily conversation. I don't always use it in my daily conversation. So what is a stronghold? A stronghold, keeping with the theme, is a military fortress, usually located in the interior of a city. So you actually still have this in some modern cities, but especially in ancient cities when Paul uh, would have written this, um, there would have been outer walls around a a city that would have protected that city from attack. But if those outer walls were breached, which would happen, there would be actually an interior stronghold. They found uh, digs where it's as thick as 10, I'm sorry, 20 feet deep, uh, 20 feet uh, wide are this, this strongholds. It's an interior area where whoever or whatever is kept in that stronghold, it's being defended at all cost. And so that's kind of what this idea of a stronghold is. And Paul says the stronghold surrounding and protecting the sinful parts of our life are enforced by these walls. And these walls, he says, are lies and deceptions built up in our mind to keep us away from Christ and to keep us away from Christ's best in our life. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. And yet with Christ's divine power, we can knock down those walls, take captive those thoughts that go racing back and forth through our mind, take captive those negative things that seem to influence so much, and as Paul says, make them obedient to Christ. So as you see, it's a pretty big deal here, and so let's jump into this. Um, In fact, today as we begin this series uh, called Mind Games, the idea is uh, as you change your thinking, you change your life, and kind of the main idea, or the big idea as I uh, call it, is that our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. In fact, scripture and kind of current brain science, which we'll be talking at least a little bit about uh, through this, are that are, are kind of on the same page, that as our thoughts go, so go our lives. You could say it like this, what we think about determines who we are, right? Because that's where it all starts is in our minds. Uh, Proverbs 23, 7 says it like this. It says, for as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And so our thoughts uh, play this key role in our life and they direct our life. And so really what we need to do is ask the question, where are our thoughts coming from? What is, you know, what's playing an influence uh, on my thoughts? Because if we were honest about it, um, even as, as Christian people, many of us, as we kind of think about our thoughts, we might say, you know, my thoughts are probably less influenced by God's word and God's truth and what's right and, and, and good and those things. And, and often are, are equally influenced or maybe even more influenced by either cultural perceptions, personal things that we believe, half-truths that are planted by our enemy. And so as a result, we miss that abundant life that we're talking about. So in, the, in 1 John, the book of 1 John, he describes it like this. He says that our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is kind of those cultural influences. Uh, the flesh is the stuff, even the sinful stuff inside of me. And the devil, of course, is an enemy to um, all people, but especially to God's people. So let me just give you some examples of this. And again, I want to just kind of walk through a few biblical examples and see if uh, you could see how kind of this uh, negative thinking or twisted, distorted thinking can wreak havoc in our lives. So three biblical examples. Let's just walk through these one by one. Um, the first one is one that we actually talk about uh, 
uh, fairly often, and it goes all the way back to creation, to Genesis chapter 3. So God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the perfect garden of Eden, has fellowship with them. God says, you know, here's all the blessings for you. There's one thing you can't do. You can't eat of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you eat it, you will die, right? So super clear. All this stuff, great. Tree of good and evil, don't eat that or you will die. Next thing we read is that the serpent who represents the devil or is the devil comes in and begins to, to get into the ear of Adam and Eve. And this is the argument that he makes. He says this, he says, did God really say? And you're like, yes, he did. I can turn back one page and, and see it, but that's not what they do. Right? He says, did God really say? And then he kind of adds on to it and he says, well, you will not surely die. What he's doing is raising a question, is, is what God's word says and is what God says, is it really true and is it valid? Is it relevant in our world today? And you guys, this lie and this scheme is running rampant in our world. It always has. It always has. It's not like it's anything new. But this concept is super prevalent in the world that we live because so many people are asking that question is, did God really say that? And did God really mean that? And you think about even just some of the, the issues where, where there's struggle, issues of, of sexuality and gender, issues of marriage, issues of life and what is life, issues of faith. And you have a loud voice saying, did God really say and even if God did say that stuff, isn't that old-fashioned? And is it still valid? And we pick up on those things and we let those things influence us and begin to be twisted. And that's what happens to Adam and Eve. So that's the first biblical example. Maybe you're familiar with that one. Let me give you another one. Uh, maybe you've seen this before. It's actually found uh, kind of tucked away in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 13, it's a time when God's people, the Israelites, have been led out of slavery in Egypt. So they'd been slaves, right? And they sang the We're No Longer Slaves song, but they didn't always get it because they come out through the Red Sea and they're um, wandering in the wilderness, uh, but they're on their way to the promised land. And God's promise is in this land, there's something good for you. That's that abundant life. That's that good life that I've got for you. And so they say, well, why don't we do this? Let's send 12 spies in to check out the land, right? Because there's Canaanite people in there. We don't know what we're going to find. So let's send these 12 spies in to check out the land. They go in there. We don't know exactly how the influence came to them. Part of it is they had been slaves in Egypt and their ancestors had, you know, been in, in all of this too. And so they, they, they go in there and 10 of the 12 who have the strongest voices are more convinced by some sort of deception and some sort of lie. And they go in and they say this, they say, man, the land is good. It's really good. We like it. We would love to go in there, but we'll never, we'll never make it. There's no way we could go in there because we're not big enough. We're not strong enough. We, for whatever reason, don't believe God can help us because in this land, there are actually giants in the land. These people, they seem like giants to us. And this is actually what they say in Numbers 13. When they come back, they say this. They, they tell the other Israelites, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. They're raising the question here of who am I as God's child? Am I really powerful enough to take the things that, that God told me to do? And so they say, well, we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. In other words, we kind of feel small ourselves. But then they add this. And 
those people over there, they looked at us and they thought we looked like grasshoppers too. And I want to ask the question of them, how do you know that's true? How do you know they looked at you like grasshoppers? Did you ask them? Did you have a conversation? Did you dialogue with them? Or did you just assume this thing to be true? That because I feel small, everybody else looks at me a certain way. And we assume that kind of stuff all the time. Everybody's thinking a certain thing about me because I'm thinking that. And so because of that, they say, oh, we can never go in there. The 10 loudest voices win the day. The Israelites never, in, uh, never enter in for the next 40 years. They wander in the wilderness and all of them except the two spies die in the wilderness. That is a very costly false truth that they believed that they weren't big enough to go in there. Well, you might say, well, Glenn, how do you know these giants actually didn't look at them like grasshoppers? Maybe, maybe the, the giants really did look at them like grasshoppers. Well, if you continue on in the story, you come into Joshua chapter 2. And when this next generation trusts God and they actually step into the waters across the, the, um, across the Jordan River into the promised land, one of the first people they meet is a Canaanite woman by the name of Rahab. And they start to have a conversation with Rahab about what the Canaanites thought about the Israelites coming in. And in Joshua chapter 2, Rahab says it like this. When we saw you come in, she didn't say, we, we thought you guys were grasshoppers and we we're going to squish you. You know what Rahab says? She says, our hearts melted like wax. We were so afraid because we saw who you were. And more importantly, we know who your God is. And so the Israelites were believing they look at us like grasshoppers. Their truth was with God, there's nothing that we can do. So do you see how just that false truths begin to get twisted around and change the destiny of a nation? Third example of this, um, a biblical example, uh, there's many of them, but one more, uh, from Luke chapter 19. And it's one of these ones where Jesus is telling a parable, and he tells stories to communicate truth. And in this story, it's known as the parable of the talents, because Jesus gives, or I'm sorry, Jesus tells the story about a master who gives three different servants a talent, which is a, a type of money. And to one, he gives 10 talents, and to one, he gives five talents, and to another servant, the master gives one talent. And the one who gets 10 talents invests it and has a great return on it, makes a fortune for the master, and the master says, that's awesome, way to go. And then to the one who gets five, uh, same deal. He invests it, makes, uh, you know, a lot of, of money in return for the master, and he gives it to him. And then you come to the one who had only one talent, and this one had not even invested it. In fact, he, he not even put it in the bank, he just buried it, right? He just... I'm just going to bury it because I don't know what's going to happen. So the master comes back. What did you do with my talent? I buried it. And so he doesn't have anything to return for it. And the master says to him, what were you thinking there? What, you know, what led you to that? And this is what the man says. He says, this is why I did that. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. So in other words, I was so afraid of you. I was so afraid that was going to happen. I just hid my stuff away because you're a hard man. The last thing I wanted to do was cross the master. So of course, God is the master in that story. And so when you read that, I want to ask the question, what made you think that the master, what made you think that God is a hard man? What has it made you think that he's unjust and takes what doesn't belong to him? And so I have to live in fear. Because actually, if you study the Old Testament, even where you see the power of God time and time again, God reveals himself like this. I am a gracious and compassionate God, and I am slow to anger and abounding in love. That's the most common description that God gives of himself in the Old Testament. But this guy's rolling around saying, oh, I'm afraid of you, right? Because you're vengeful. And I want to ask him, where did you hear that? 
Where, where did you come up with that perception? Because a lot of us walk around with that perception. And, and I want to say, where did we get that idea? I'll tell you where he got the idea. The same place that Eve got the idea that you will not surely die. In the same way that the, 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 the spies got the idea that we look like grasshoppers, right? Because listening to those lies, even in just those three areas, what God's word says, who I really am, who God really is, if we get those things twisted around, those are enough to create strongholds in our thinking that unless they are torn down, will keep us living as captives apart from the abundant life that he has for us. So does that make sense? So that's really what we're talking about here. And so uh, let's kind of turn the page here and let's begin to talk about our thoughts. Let's think for a minute about what we think about. So in your notes, there's a super simple uh, little questionnaire. Um, we're calling it a thought audit. So what I want you to do is, is just kind of rate yourself or think about how you think, what's common in your thinking. And there's three questions. And so the first question has to do with on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate yourself when it comes to worry versus peace? So are your thoughts characterized by worry or are your thoughts more characterized by being full of peace? Are your thoughts full of anxiety, panic, fear, constantly focused on what could go wrong? Are your thoughts usually about all the problems and disasters and, and all the things that are just lurking out there around the next corner? Or are you able to do what, what God says, which is cast your cares on me because I care for you? So on a scale of one to 10, would you say that your thoughts are more characterized by worry or by peace? And I'm not judging you. I'm just asking you to think about it. Question number two, area number two is, are, do your thoughts tend to drift towards the negative or do your thoughts tend to drift toward the positive? Do you find yourself suspicious and critical of people, right? Your first thought of a person is not to give them a chance or to be positive about them, but it's more critical of them. Is your focus always on what's wrong and what's wrong in the world and all the problems of the world and of the day? Or are you able to find yourself looking on the bright side? Are you able to, to see the best and believe the best in others? Are you hopeful even when things are difficult that, that God will be with you and that you can make a difference? So are you negative or positive, scale of 1 to 10? Third question in this little thought audit is, would you say that the majority of your thoughts that are just zipping around your mind day in and day out, are they focused on the temporary or the things of this world, the, what we call worldly things, or are they more on eternal things, things like the kingdom of God? What do you find yourself thinking about when you first wake up in the morning? Are you constantly thinking about material things? What I have, what I don't have, what I wish I had? Are you constantly thinking about how do I look? What will I wear? What am I going to do for fun? Or do your mind shift to the eternal things of some of the things we just talked about? Who God is, who I am in him, how, how do I make him known? How do I live on mission for him? Because the idea of this whole deal is, if our life is moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts, and if our thoughts are constantly leaning towards the negative, or the anxious, or the worldly, then there's no surprise 
when my attitudes and my behaviors start to drift the direction of my thoughts. So if I'm like, whoa, I'm like all on that left-hand side of, you know, of worried and, and, uh, and anxious, worried and, and worldly and all those things, uh, that's the direction that my life is going to drift. And so what I want to do today is just kind of lay the foundation for these next few weeks. I want to give us kind of two really essential building blocks for beginning to live in the victory that, that God would have for us um, in this battle. So I want to get to those um, in just a second. But before we jump into those, I also feel like I just need to tell you a very hard and very sad and very difficult story that to me more than illustrates, I don't want it to be cheap like an illustration, that just shows us what we're dealing with here, shows us how important um, this is. And I, as I share this, I, I want to be very respectful. I do not want to be overly dramatic or, or overly heavy. Uh, but I want to show you a picture of a young man uh, who is a part of our church named Adam Beck. Adam. Uh, Adam is 32 years old and um, a couple weeks ago passed away when he took his own life. And uh, Adam was a part of our church And I am embarrassed to say and just grief-stricken to say, none of us saw it coming. None of us saw this. We all knew Adam and, you know, we knew he had stuff. We knew he had problems here and there like everybody does. Adam worked with our middle school kids. And um, sorry, it just kind of hit me all of a sudden. Um, Adam worked with our middle school kids. And he was not necessarily the guy who would do the, the lesson up front. But he was the guy who would get here early and shoot hoops with the kids. And he would throw the football around. And he would, you know, just that, that kind of thing. And so, like I said, it just caught us by such shock to hear this. He'd been active in church. He'd missed one week. And so when we heard this, we were just devastated. The family called um, and said, hey, you know, we'd like to do a service for Adam. They, uh, his brother who organized that lived out of state, and so we didn't know him before that. Um, Pastor Stephen Rossi did a great job leading that service. And so the, the brother said, hey, let's, you know, we'd like to put on a service. We probably expect maybe 50 people will come to that. And we said, hey, we're going to at least plan food for 100 on that day, we were planning on doing it over in the chapel that seats about 100, um, but we had to quickly move it in here when over 200 people showed up to begin to pay tribute to Adam. And here's the thing that happened, and I wasn't surprised about this at all. There was an opportunity, like there often is at a funeral, for people to stand up and share a memory or a thought about Adam. And it went on and on and on as one after another, people in his family people that he worked with, people from the church stood up and all said something very consistent. What a great guy Adam was. What a a difference he made in my life. These are the times that he brought me joy. And as we listened to this, the thought in my mind, I think, was probably prevalent all across this room. Because the thought was this, it doesn't compute. It, It doesn't add up here for all of us to be talking about all of these promising and great things. And yet, to think about a person to not only get into such despair that they thought, I'm, I, I'm thinking about taking my life, but to actually act on that, and in this case, actually be successful. And here's the problem, you guys. This is an extreme story, I get it, but it is becoming far too common. And I confess, I don't know what Adam was thinking on that day. I don't know, you know, I don't know what he was thinking, but this I know for sure. Our enemy, the devil, is a liar and the father of lies and will do whatever he can 
to twist or distort or go around or run over or just plain ignore the truth of God's word that says you are valuable and you are loved and you have meaning. And the place where that deadly game takes place is in our minds and in our thoughts. And so that's why Paul says, yes, it's a battle. It's a battle, but God's given you these weapons so that you can experience victory in that battle. So just in our remaining short time together, let me give you a couple building blocks. We'll be building on these in the the weeks to come. Um, What are some first steps that we could take to winning this battle in our mind? And the first one is this. Identify the biggest stronghold that is holding you back. Right? So take a look, whether it's through that little thought audit or just as you think about yourself. What are kind of those consistent things that you come back to that you know are 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 holding you back? Maybe it's an insecurity that that you don't fit in or you don't belong, especially at church. I you know, those people would never like me. Or you think I'll never be good enough, or um, you know, people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. It's an insecurity. Maybe you're convinced that the mistakes in your past or even in your present have you at a place where God could never love you or God could never use you. Maybe you feel helpless to overcome just a behavior that you're stuck in and you hate that you keep running back to it, but you keep running back to it. You think, I'm never going to experience victory over alcohol or pornography or food or a desire for popularity or whatever it is that calls out to you. Maybe it's an insecurity that I'm never going to measure up to family expectations or I'm always going to be alone in life or I'm never going to be a good enough spouse or I'm never going to be a good, a good enough a parent, whatever it is. Whatever it is, you have to identify it, be real about it, and you've got to call it out. You've got to say, this is where this struggle is because here's the way the brain works. Try to imagine that every morning I open my front door and I walk out the front door and I walk across my lawn to the front of my house. And for a hundred days in a row, I do the exact same thing. I walk across the lawn and at the end of the day, I walk back and I walk across my lawn and I walk back and I walk back and I walk back and forth. At the end of a hundred days, what's that lawn going to look like? There's going to be a little pathway in there, right? You're going to have worn some ruts in the lawn. And that's exactly the way the brain is. The brain is the same way. The more often you have thoughts, positive or negative, but especially negative thoughts, the more often those negative thoughts play in our minds, the deeper the rut gets. The reality is that consistently having anxious, negative, and worldly thoughts actually changes the chemistry, if you will, of our minds. It creates what they call neurochemical pathways or ruts that we get stuck in. So my mind always goes back to that same thing, and I get stuck in that rut, and I get stuck in it. You might almost call it a stronghold, right? And and so what if then we take a different approach? What if for 50 days or even 25 days, I say this, I'm going to go across there, but I'm going to take a different pathway. I'm not going to walk over that same rut. I'm going to go this way, or I'm going to go that way, or I'm going to go a different way. What's going to happen to that grass? It's going to begin to grow back, and it's going to begin to flourish. And so really what we're talking about here is how do I take a different pathway? When I see my mind going those directions, how do I begin to take a different pathway? Because if step one is about what strongholds are holding you back, step two is about choosing a different pathway 
alignment pathway. And step two is simply this. Identify, we've already identified a lie. Step two is identify a biblical truth that demolishes that stronghold. Identify a biblical truth that demolishes that stronghold. And the idea of of that is what truth does God's word say that will help me overcome that lie? And I'm I'm specific. I'm not thinking about some just kind of general truth. I'm talking about, is there a verse, chapter and verse, that I could commit to memory, that I could write down and put on my refrigerator and write down and put on my mirror in my car, that I could share it with someone else, that I could sing it in a song? Is there a scripture that I can actually attach to a biblical truth that helps to demolish that stronghold? Because you have to replace the negative with something positive. And the best way to chase that negative out is with something positive. So let me just go back to something I said earlier, which is that this is a battle. Because you may sit in church and think, hey, that's really cool. I should learn some Bible verses, and I know I'm struggling in this area. But here's the reality of it. If I could just be super real with us. All around this room, there are people, myself included, who could quote the lyrics to your 10 favorite artists' top 10 songs. And those are in your mind that, you know, they're just right there. You could, if I started singing, you would just, well, probably you'd laugh, but maybe you'd join in because you just know those words. They come right to you. Or there's some of us, myself included, who knows all of the stats about your favorite team or your favorite player. Or there are people here who spend hours a day letting the, the, the opinion and ideas of your favorite cable news program or your favorite social media influencer just kind of wash over your mind. And we do all of those things. But when the pastor says, hey, could you find one Bible verse to help you? You say, oh, I wouldn't even know how to begin or where to look. If we treat this casually, we're not going to experience victory. We've got to open up our Bibles and spend time in there. So that's my challenge to you this week. Is there a specific verse? And if you need help, ask a friend. In fact, I would ask a friend. If you need help, ask me. If you need help, ask Google. Google could probably help you find a verse in this one that you're, you're, you're thinking about. But here's what I want to encourage you with. Maybe all of us could work together on this one. Philippians 4.8. If you don't know Philippians 4.8, this is a great place to start. It covers all of these things in a little more general sense. Um, it's one that I think about a lot. Philippians 4.8 says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, do what? Think about such things. In other words, take that negative stuff and replace it with that positive stuff. Which brings us to, as my dear friend Steve Steele says, so what? That is kind of fun when you do it like that. Wow, I could see how you'd be into that. Hey, my so what is super simple. We've talked about it, but let me just say it in a simple way. The best way to overcome a lie is with the truth. The best way to overcome a lie is with the truth. And the best truth is God's truth. In fact, this is how Jesus says it. He says, and you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And as you think about that, as you think about the truth, as we've been talking about, it, it is a, the truth is a Bible verse or the truth is a, a biblical concept or something like that. But in context, do you know what the truth, when Jesus says the truth will set you free, he's not talking about an idea or a verse. He's talking about a person. He's talking about himself. He says, I am the truth. I am the way and I am the life. And so the starting point of all of this, as I said, is not, you know, three simple chips and tricks on getting a better mind. This is how do I begin to let Jesus 
become the Lord of my life and help me change these things. Because the truth ultimately begins with a relationship, not with a concept or an idea, but with the person who is alive as we celebrated last week. Hey, let me just close by sharing an example of this that may or may not be helpful to you. But I was thinking about it this week as I was thinking about pathways and kind of the, the pathways. And I was remembering um, when I was in seminary. So Janie and I were just married and I went to school in Denver, Colorado. And so we were, as I said, just married. And so we didn't have much money. And so to kind of help make ends meet, I took a job at this seminary where we lived. It's like a campus, a college campus kind of deal. Um, I took a job shoveling snow. So it was a terrible job. I'm telling you, it was, you know, of course you only do it when it's freezing cold outside. And the way it would work is they would actually call you at like 4.30 in the morning and say, hey, guess what? It snowed last night. And so grab your shovel and get out there. And when we lived in Denver, it happened all the time. So I would get out there early in the morning and I'd begin to shovel and I'd take my shovel and my job was to clear the, the pathways around the campus. And so I would do that. And then I would always try to, this was kind of above and beyond, I would always try to clear a little pathway from uh, our apartment to where our car was because I knew that Janie was going to have to get in the car and, and go to work. So I'd shovel my little pathway and it'd be hard and the snow would come and cover it up and I had this little shovel and it was tough. So anyways, I would be shoveling away with my snow shovel and every once in a while, the people on this team that had graduated from snow shovel which, by the way, I never did. I was always on snow shovel. Some graduated from snow shovel to snow plow. And so they actually drove the truck with the plow. And so I'd be out there working away, working away, and they would come by, and in like 10 seconds, they would clear what would have taken me an hour to clear. And you say, oh, you know, what are you telling me with that suspect little illustration? And the illustration is this. I think a lot of us tend to fight this battle or these battles with snow shovel power when what we need is the guy driving the snowplow. And in this little illustration, Jesus is the one driving the snowplow. And he says, let me begin. Let me begin by putting those things aside because I have victory for you and I want you to walk in these things. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this life, the challenges and the beauty of it. I thank you, Lord, that you provide a pathway for us to victory. And so right now, Lord, as a church, we kind of just agree in, in unity that we want to be people who are not controlled by negative and worldly and anxious thoughts. We want to be controlled by the fruits of your spirit, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And so together we pledge, Lord, to think about our thoughts and to identify where, when we're getting off track and to bring your scripture in, to fill in and, and get us back on the path of truth. And so I pray for myself and for my friends all across this room, those that are even watching in the gym, those that are watching online. Father, that you would help them identify where is that place that they're living a lie or they're living under your best for them. And that they would identify that and that you would fill that lie in with your truth. I pray, Lord, for the people that are here. I pray for, uh, Lord, many of us are hearing a message like this and, and we worry about someone. We worry about a kid or a grandkid or a friend. And so, Lord, we pray for those as well, that we would be a light in, in their life. And, Lord, I just pray that you would do a powerful thing over these next few weeks as we open up your word and we want to be people of your word. And then finally, Lord, I pray for those that might be here today who, who recognize that they don't even have a relationship with you, but they say, yeah, I need that. And so even just in the quiet of their seat, they pray something like this, Jesus, come into my life. 
Father, forgive my sins. I, I know I can't do this on my own, and so I need your help. Jesus, will you begin to become the Lord and, and lead my life? And, and Jesus hears that prayer and comes in even today. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.